Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. We are back with a book review um, this week, uh, which is, uh, you know, I know we've read more this year to, you know, year to date (laughs) than we did the previous year, but it really doesn't feel, I don't know if it's because of the view and how much goddamn TV we have to talk about. (laughs) Just feels like, like we haven't read a whole lot. Do you, are you pushing for a key page update so soon in the episode? Is that what you want to do? Um, do you have one? I mean, let's 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 keep it to the end. Do you have one? Um, not including this book. Okay. All right. Well, maybe after we review uh, this book, which is The Fisherman by John Langan. Now, Rob, refresh my memory. I've heard this somewhere recently. Did we talk about this this book? Did this come up on a previous episode? Yes. So. Uh, this is, I, be- <laughs> I believe this is the only award from the This Is Horror Awards that didn't go in one way or another to that guy, Mike Davis, who um, won our podcast category uh, in the hashtag This Is Rigged uh, scandal of 2017. Mm. It's funny because it says in this bio, though, that John Langan is uh, Mike Davis's brother-in-law. So I don't know uh, if that says anything. <laughs> but, yeah. I'm oh, kidding. So it doesn't. Hashtag yeah. This <laughs> Is Nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and read the actual <laughs> bio here. Um, but I thought it was important that we read the the winner of the This Is Horror Awards, because if it won, it just has to be fantastic, right? Um, yeah, and we already read the the runner-up and another um, mm-hmm. um, qualifier. So, man, we're really sweeping that category as far as what we read. Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure we're done after this. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> John Langan is the author of two novels, The Fisherman and House of Windows, and two collections of stories, The Wide, Carnivorous Sky, and Other Monstrous Geographies, and Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters. With Paul Tremblay, he co-edited Creatures, 30 Years of Monsters. He's one of the founders of the Shirley Jackson Awards, for which he served as a juror during its first three years. Currently, he reviews horror and dark fantasy for Locust Magazine. In early 2017, his next collection... Sephira and Other Betrayals will be published. Later in 2017, Diversion Books will release a new edition of his first novel, House of Windows, which will include new material, including a new story further exploring the legacy of Belvedere House. I want to go on a record as saying that I cut out probably a good paragraph from that author bio. So, um, one of the more lengthy author bios we've had recently, I believe. You're always very good at, at shortening them, though. I will yeah. say that. Yeah. If it's if it if if ever an author bio includes a publisher name, that shit is the first thing to go. Sorry, publishers. <laughs> like nobody cares what publisher put out a book. Never. It's never been. No one's ever cared. No. No. I mean, people. Uh, so that's what it is too. Is is authors care about who's <laughs> publishing someone's book? Readers like us, we couldn't care less. Never care. Yeah. Nope. Never. Never care. Um, here is the synopsis for The Fisherman that we pulled from Amazon. No, um, no adjusting to this. This is a legit synopsis. In upstate New York, in the woods around Woodstock, Dutchman's Creek flows out of the Ashokan Reservoir. Is that, would that be? I think that's probably close. Or Ashokan, one or the yeah. other. Reservoir, right away, just uh, derailed by um, an unfortunate word. Steep banked, fast moving. It offers the promise of fine fishing and of something more, a possibility too fantastic to be true. When Abe and Dan, two widowers who have found solace in each other's company and a shared passion for fishing, hear rumors of the creek and what might be found there, the remedy to both of their losses, they dismiss it as just another fish story. Soon, though, the men find themselves drawn into a tale as deep and as old as the reservoir. It's a tale of dark pacts, of long-buried secrets, and of a mysterious figure known as Der Fisher, the fisherman. It will bring Abe and Dan face to face with all that they have lost and with the price they must pay to regain it. Now, I have edited that in a way. Did you have a comment, Lucas? <laughs> just going to say, listeners don't understand that that synopsis took about nine minutes to do because the they heard it all. struggle. <laughs> in like 45 seconds. So, so I'm going to count that one. I'm going to count. One. I'm counting the the commas in one of these um one of these sentences. Two, three, four, five, five commas in a sentence. My God, man, it is just so like ah, uh, that was that was challenging. So that might <laughs> knock like a half a star off of my review right there. The goddamn frustrating synopsis. I mean, a synopsis 
theoretically is part of a book, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? You know what? Authors that are listening to this podcast, when you're crafting your synopsis, just just assume that someday it's going to have to be read on my podcast if we decide to, to review your book and just make it fucking easy for us. Read it out loud once and realize how goddamn complicated your synopsis is. That being said, it's pretty pretty accurate synopsis. It's really good. I, well, I, I think, and this is going to come into play a lot because I saw you made a note about it, but one of the things that struck me the most about this book, so we're going to skip down to Rob's second to last note. Um, this reminds me a little bit of, of, in the way it's told, of House of Leaves. And I'll explain really quickly why for anybody who's read House of Leaves. I think you'll kind of understand what I'm getting at. House of Leaves is about a house that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. We're seeing this story through research done by Zampano, who's a blind man who's been researching it. But we're seeing Zampano's discoveries through the eye of Johnny Truant, whose story we're actually reading. So it's a story within a story within a story. And that's how this book plays out. Dude, I'm so shocked that you remember any character in House of Leaves' name aside from Johnny Truant. Rob is surprised because I say to him, like, oh, oh, that's the sound of me snapping. I'm like, what's that book that we reviewed like two weeks ago? <laughs> so that happens often. But some of them, some of them stick with me for a long time. I can do that with Atlas Shrugged, too. I can probably go like six characters deep in Atlas Shrugged right now if I needed to. That's real strange. Um, Love yeah. me some Ayn Rand. Bite that, listeners. I know some <sighs> listeners that are fucking rolling their eyes right now and is the shit she was all right before like it was cool <laughs> yeah that's true um uh yeah so it is kind of like a storytelling it's like a game of telephone a little bit because it's like a story heard from like someone told the story and we're hearing it from the person who heard it from a person who heard it from a person so it's kind of neat but um so uh the the book before we jump into kind of the progression of the story up until the point where we can, you know, we stop for spoilers is broken up into three parts. There's a part called men without women. There's a part called Der Fisher, uh, a tale of terror. And then there's a part called on the shore of the black ocean. And, um, the, the thing, the reason I want to point this out is, um, and I don't think this is spoiling anything. The first part is about the first quarter of the book. And then the second part is easily half of the book. And the second part is all um, the people in the synopsis, Abe and Dan, hearing a story from the past. And then the third part is back to the present time. So legitimately half of the book takes place entirely separately from what we would consider the protagonists of the book. So it's interesting to see how um, we, we get introduced to these characters and all this like story and character building happens. And then, boom, we're just sent you know, a century into the past to hear that story before we're brought back to the present day to see kind of how everything plays out. So it was kind of an interesting um, structure for the book. Yeah. And I mean, I think overall it worked well. We'll kind of get to how we get to that point, I think, um, once we kind of get into the story a little bit. So I'll uh, I'll kick it off. Um, we meet Abe, our narrator, who is um, who's recounting the entire story. That'll make more sense, I guess, as we talk about it later. But he has... Um, lost his wife and he's kind of talking us through the process of how he came to terms with it and is able to move on through his life. And he uses fishing as a, uh, a hobby, um, to, to get his mind off of, off of losing his wife. Now he'd never fished before. So a couple things to say here. First of all, I suggested we read this because it won the, this is horror award. I was not thrilled by the title of the fisherman because fishing, and we'll talk about this after podcast, I find to be particularly boring. I was really concerned that this book was going to bore me to death with fishing. Um, but I was happy to find out that Abe had not fished before. So we weren't like rolled into this story where it was going to be a lot about different kinds of lures and reels and rods like people tend to do when they um, cast their character as an expert in the field of something. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So Abe tells us how he develops this this love for fishing. He gets up one day, decides to go fishing, and, and he finds it great. He spends morning till night on his days off from work doing it, and he talks a little bit about the area and how he kind of became a better fisherman. Um, and that's uh, the, the kickoff for part one. That's how we're introduced to Abe. He's a little bit of a loner, 
um, since his wife died, doesn't really have any friends or at least none that he talks about, but he does have his rod and his reel. Yeah. And then after kind of falling into a rhythm where he found that fishing uh, helps him deal with, you know, what's what's going on in his life. He discovers that a coworker of his named Dan has recently lost his uh, family uh, in a tragedy. And so uh, he, over the course of, of time, eventually kind of gets to the point where he invites Dan to uh, fish with him just um, just as a way to, I, I'm guessing part of it is to, to not be alone himself, but the other part would be, um, hey, I went through this a similar thing. Fishing helped me out. Um, there was a vague mention of fishing, and maybe this was something that was going to help this guy out too. And so they kind of strike up this uh, friendship around um, fishing, and they dance around, and they're really kind of... Um, both of them are really kind of careful about not poking the the tragedy thing too much from either uh, from each other. Um, but I think they just kind of form a friendship around um, being passionate about fishing, and you know, just it's obvious that it is something that they use for for very personal reasons. But at the surface level, they just become good friends because they have a mutual hobby. I guess is what I'm trying to say. I like the way their relationship was portrayed because it felt it felt fairly real in that um, a lot of guys don't go deep personal with their friends. So they have good friends, but it's I don't want to say it's a it's a it's a lot more surface friendship than perhaps two women who are very, very close and, you know, share all their their kind of personal problems and stuff with one another. So I felt like that was done uh, fairly well. Mm-hmm. Um, so see their friendship develop and, and we, we get again. So we've gone through Abe's loss and what's happened and through the course of him meeting dan we kind of learn about dan losing his wife and children and, and some of the things that he goes through um not because abe is our narrator we get a lot more interpersonal stuff from him dan's we see from the outside you know it's it's dan's doing pretty well but then the holidays roll around and dan's not doing so well and you know and there's times where dan opens up but then there's times where dan's you know kind of not available at all just kind of you know, disappears from the friendship, so to speak. But Dan um, does come back eventually and asks Abe to go fishing with him, but he has a very specific location in mind. And and Dan feels like something's a little off about this, but really doesn't question it because he's just happy to go find a new creek to uh, to fish in. So we're, we're led into the end of part one, uh, which, by the way, Men Without Women... I'm glad we didn't have to review that book. It's fine as a part of this. But when I read that, I was like, oh, this sounds like something that someone would force us to review because they're a Patreon <laughs> contributor or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, way, way more innocent than it might sound. Um, wait, wasn't that the name of – hold on. That sounds familiar. Men Who Hate Women. That's um, uh, that's um, the girl with the dragon tattoo. That was the original name for that. Oh, really? Yeah. So like oh. the, the the original – what is it? Swedish? Yes. Yeah, the original Swedish title, I don't know, we must have talked about this on an early, early episode of Booked. Whatever it is in Swedish translates to men who hate women, but for the English translation, the title was changed to Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. So Men Without Women, very, very close to um, that, but very, very different in content. I'm pretty sure um, most of our listeners are familiar with the, the, the movie Women Without Men. I'm not. Oh, uh, sure you're not, Rob. I'm going to go on your internet history, and I'm sure I'm going to find it in there. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just sounds like a good title for, for, oh, for I a see film that, you know, of a more adult nature. Hey, um, before we jump on to part two um, and all the shit that happens there, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, so kind of the phenomenon that happens in part one of this book is that these two guys who had kind of similar tragedies in their life naturally kind of grouped together. Um, but, and I was thinking about this outside of, uh, like a self-help group. Do you think things like that happen in society on a regular basis? Like, you know, I lost my wife, someone else lost their wife and we just kind of hang out because we know what it's like. No, no. No. <laughs> okay. I don't. That was, yeah, that's the thing I was like, it seemed pretty convenient that these two guys who work in the same office within a similar amount of, you know, w- within a close time frame, both lost their wives tragically. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if they're both older. I think part of the, the difference is that Abe, neither one of them is, is like an older guy. I, I get the feeling this might happen or would have been. I'm not saying it's not plausible, but I'm saying it's been far more plausible if our, our two main characters, the narrator and then his like sidekick friend were like 70. If this was like grumpy old men. Yeah, <laughs> that would be more believable. But gotcha. as far as that goes, but I mean, I, I don't see why it couldn't happen, I guess. Yeah. yeah. For the sake of the um, story, yeah, that's not. Yeah. not I, I just it made me think. Oh, I wonder if this is something that happens all the time, but but I'm thinking not. On their way to the creek, they stop for uh, lunch or breakfast, I guess. Breakfast, and they are talking to Howard, who works at the restaurant that they stop at, and they mention where they're going. And Howard is a little taken aback by hearing that they're going to um, Fisherman's Creek. Dutchman's Dutchman's Creek. Dutchman's Creek. That they're going to Dutchman's Creek. So, of course, Abe, who already thought there was something a little off, um, asks Howard about, you know, Howard says, yeah, maybe you guys want to pass on Dutchman's Creek. And Abe pushes him a little bit. And what he gets is this story from Howard about disappearances and terrible things that happened there. But then he goes on to recount the first story of this happening. So, you know, over the last few years, there've been some people have gone missing up there, that kind of thing, you know, but he goes on to tell the story of Reverend Mapple. I'm going to go with Mapple. It's got two P's in it, right? Yeah. Who originally was investigating this some time ago. I don't think it's very specific, but it had been a few years since he was investigating this. So part two, Der Fisher, a tale of terror, is Abe writing out the story that Reverend Mapple originally told Howard, which Reverend Mapple learned from Lottie Schmidt, who was actually a player in the original, you know, roughly hundred year ago story. Yeah. And I think, and you'll back me up on this, Livius. Um, I think that because we know this is Abe retelling the story that we got from Howard through Reverend Mapple through everybody else, I think Abe at one point says that he's filled in some of the information on his own through other research. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Okay, cool. Um, Yeah, so we're fucking transported back in time to New York State. Like, in the, I'm guessing, it's supposed to be late 1800s, early 1900s, I believe, correct? I believe so, yes. Yeah. To a place that is... um, like a normal kind of, you know, there's a cluster of towns um, in New York State, and at one point, it's decided by the city of New York that needs a steady uh, water supply that they're going to dam up a river and create a reservoir, which will be their source of water, but in the course of it, it's going to flood uh, some of these towns. So that's kind of what's going on during the course of Part 2, is that... um, that's kind of the overall setting is they're in towns that will eventually need to be displaced. Um, if, if New York has its way in this, this place becomes a reservoir. Um, but so what you have is uh, a town with a bunch of workers and, um, you know, just kind of their day-to-day lives, which is, you know, the, how we're introduced to the area, but doesn't take too long for weird shit to start happening. Right. There is a, um, a rich, mean businessman um, in the area. And he one day before all of this transpires receives a mysterious guest. Um, guy rides into town and kind of catches everyone's attention, but doesn't really talk to anybody, but he's uh, makes people uncomfortable, kind of a disconcerting fella. And he goes to live up at the uh, rich guy's house and the rich guy lost his wife recently. So a lot of weird goings on happen there. And eventually the old guy dies off and he was the last of the people that could put up a fight against having this dam and reservoir built. So kind of things uh, already had started proceeding as his health was failing, but really that's the final straw and they move in full force to build this dam. And that's where we get by far the bulk of the book. 40% of the book has to take place between there and the eventual, climax of that story in the 1800s um now one thing we haven't really mentioned yet is just like the level of creepiness in this book and um so i want to talk a little bit about that right now Uh, before 
before the reservoir thing, while well, the reservoir thing is still in play, and but soon after, um, rich guy's wife dies. Um, that's when the guest that the 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 people of the town call the weird guy that comes to visit the rich guy. They call him like his guest. Um, when the guest shows up, that's when weird things start to happen. So, um, the the rich guy buries his wife, but then as time goes on, um weird things start to happen so he's the rich guy is sending these these pelts and stuff to a tannery but they're not really sure what kind of animal they came from so people are kind of confused and thinking weird things are starting to go on there's weird lights and sounds coming from the mansion that the rich guy lives in and then like during storms and stuff people think they're seeing uh like creepy people like out for a walk so the rich guy's out for a walk with some woman who's really tall in like a black veil and another time they think that they see him walking around with his dead wife. So, like, people are just, you know, there's... The camp is is full of a bunch of, you know, people who are just working class people who, when weird things start to go on, the rumor mill starts, like, going, like, like crazy. And um, people are trying to figure out what's going on. And really, it goes from rumor to to more... Of a of a rooted reality when uh, a a wife of one of the, the the workers in the town steps in front of some fast moving um, horse carts and gets trampled and killed, um, and really weird things start to happen after she's buried. Yeah, a few days later, she shows back up. <laughs> but she's a little different and a little off. Um, which is, you know, uh, well trod, you know, story there, you know, the, the kind of person who comes back from the dead, but they're really not how they used to be. Right. I want to touch a little bit on what Rob said, because I, I fear we would have missed this or maybe I would have caught it in the wrap up. That section on the guest is done so well because it's all done from so-and-so said they saw this happen, you know, but it, we don't actually ever interact with the guest or with the rich guy for whatever, for, you know, from, for that point, you know, we, we see this from afar and there's very little that's actual factual information that's happening. We're getting it all as just kind of creepy hearsay, which I think works much better than having introduced us to the guest and saying the guest had, you know, whatever, well, I'm just making it up because I don't know it, but they have summoned, this demoness to wear a black veil and they walk right. through the garden together. So it's so much creepier that we're seeing it from the outside, like the people in town are instead of having like, you know what I mean? Actual interaction with them. Right. Because we're basically seeing this situation unfold through the very paranoid and scared eyes of the people who have no way of understanding what they're seeing going on. So, um, we're we're bought into the paranoia and the fright and the fear of the unknowing that is is built into the the townspeople basically just being presented with something they have no idea how to understand or interpret um so yeah i agree with you 100 percent. it's it's an incredibly effective um way to to really make us feel that fright but also to put us in the shoes of we know who's the good who who's good and who's bad it doesn't humanize the guest in any way. It makes the guest mysterious and dangerous and dark, which was really well done. Rob mentioned a lady coming back to life. Her next door neighbor is a, a, a fellow by the name of Rainer Schmidt. And we get some good backstory on him, but he uh, had to leave Germany in a hurry um, with his family. <laughs> and, and through the course of the story, we find out the, the reason. But here's what, what you need to know. Rainer has a certain set of skills, <laughs> which makes him uniquely qualified. Makes him Liam Neeson. Makes him Liam Neeson um, to, to kind of deal with this. So something that he did in Germany, obviously he worked, you know, I'll just kind of say it very generally, he worked with, with the occult, not with the occult, you know, but in occult studies, I guess would be the right way to say it. So this is all going on next door, and this lady is intimidating. Like, they've taken her kids away from her because she's weird, but, like, she goes to try to get the kids back. You know, she's so back this from the dead. Because she's back from the dead. <laughs> um, but also because she's acting really weird, too. So 
Um, so we, we start to see the story develop there. I don't know how much more we're going to talk about the story, at least from that point, but know that it comes to a climax um, in the past, 71% of the way into the book by Rob's math. So, yeah. <laughs> so we get a nice, good, long, kind of gothic horror story Yeah. Um, in there, which is the basis for the final um, chapter, the final part of the book, part three, out of the shore of the black ocean. And here's the thing about the way this book plays out. Um, we're, we're, we're telling you the beats of the story, which um, the plot, I, I really think the plot was really well laid out, but we're, um, it's difficult to talk about the feeling that you get when you're reading this. So yeah, we mentioned this woman came back from the dead and of course that's creepy, but um, the way that the creepy scenes are, played out um is just so really well done um that there were times where you know reading this book alone in my apartment because i live by myself and hearing a noise in the other room really freaked me out so it really put me in that like edge of my seat kind of feeling where when something creepy was happening where someone was trying to get into a house they weren't supposed to be in I was think like it was as if that person was outside of my apartment, um, and so uh, the the it was written in, in well enough where those types of things made me feel like I was I was in the seat of the person who was feeling that anxiety. But there's also this um, otherworldly, uh, unexplained. I'm going to say supernatural. It's definitely a supernatural thing that's going on too, which I don't want to talk too much about. But there's some monstrous shit going on in the way that that stuff is described. Really, um, it's not scary in a way that's like, I want to run away from something. It's it's told in a way that's scary where, like, like it's so weird and unbelievable that your mind can't process what's going on. Would you agree with that, Livius? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's... Um... I think really to give people a a feel again without going into too much this this really treads into that cosmic horror Lovecraftian sure. kind yeah. of thing, um, which is interesting to me because I haven't read a lot of it. Um, we read um, oh what was the the retold Lovecraft story that we did? See this is what I'm talking about. Bell to Black Tom. Yeah, Bell to Black Tom level stuff hey, happening. This is horror award winner. There you go. So. <laughs> Also, no relation to whatever. No relation, Mike Davis. Mike Davis. Um, So, part three, if you're if you haven't figured it out yet, is a culmination of Dan has somehow figured out that there is something at Dutchman's Creek that might help him. Um, And then, you know, at this point, the the whole story is what are they walking into? That's that's what we get in part two. And part three is them walking into it. Yeah. (laughs) Either making it out, not making, you know what I mean? That's that's where where the where where the story goes. So told in a super interesting way, I think. Um, I don't know that we're doing personally. I don't feel that we're doing it justice because I really love the way that the the way the story you know, unravel, you know, came, came to unravel, whatever, you know what I mean? Like how he rolled this thing out Yeah. with an introduction to these two guys, something weird is going to happen. You get this huge, huge chunk that explains what's probably going to happen. And then <laughs> now they're going to face what's, what's probably going to happen. So. Yeah. And it's not unprecedented. It kind of plays out like, I mean, it's not like we've ever, we've never heard before. Like, you know, someone who's in part of a story tells the story of something that happened in the past. I mean, it's been going on forever. Um, so it's not like the structure of present time, cut to past time, story, cut to present time again, is a new or, or unconventional thing. Um, it, 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 But it lends it a kind of a classic feel that um, I think really helps out because of, you know, the... Um, the the fact that the book takes place over you know over a century of time, uh, and it implies the the story implies much farther than centuries you know centuries millennia whatever um, that's the same thing isn't it centuries eons whatever it is what's a thousand mm. years I, I think that might be millennia millennia mm, oh, was it? oh yeah you're right millennia yeah I was right okay see I shouldn't doubt myself the way that the story is told implies 
you know, a breadth of time far beyond even what we see, which is a large amount of time. Um, so it, it lends itself to the type of story, to the way that he laid out the story, um, which is, it worked out great. Um, I didn't feel like it was weird that I was learning about these folks for a while and then going back in time for a century and spending half the book there. It just worked out. Now, I will say, trolling around Amazon a little bit, there's a lot of people who, in that middle part, part two, kind of lost their interest in reading it. So, um, But it's a small, small percentage. There's like something like 80 reviews, and there was like three or four that said something like that. I'm really surprised that that, that didn't... Um, I, and again, I don't think this book is for everybody. Um, it's not something I would recommend, even to all horror fans... Um, because it is it is a very kind of slow paced dread kind of story versus your you know kind of high action yeah or um, I will say though and this is this is me um, you know I don't know whatever going back on what I've said this is probably the first book that I've read that that comes to mind that um, I didn't mind the dream sequence there was a dream sequence in that first part <laughs> yeah there was, was which was really creepy. But wound up because of the nature of the book fitting in very well. Yep. So, so I yeah. mean, it gets, it gets, I don't want to say it gets bonus points because no dream sequence ever gets bonus points. Not going to take away <laughs> anything from it. Yeah. That's, that's really so, which speaks <laughs> volumes, just that it, it gets a pass. So, oh my God. Absolutely. Um, so we can't talk about this story anymore, um, because we don't want to spoil it. And, um, Rob, there's, of course we can. There's always a way. Ah, with spoiler talk. With spoiler talk. So if you are a Patreon subscriber, um, donor, patron, whatever, if you give us money, um, <laughs> you can, we're going to head over there to do spoiler talk. And for the rest of you, we're going to be back. It's like like time travel. We'll be right back. All right. We are back from spoiler talk. If you are not currently contributing to us on Patreon, as little as a dollar a month will get you access to all the crazy shit. We, we essentially rewrote um, this book <laughs> to um, tie up what we, what we discovered might be a little bit of a plot inconsistency. So uh, if you're interested to hear that, if that's not going to compel you to go over there, us rewriting a book, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what will. But Livius is going to go buy a knife and visit you at your house. I don't know why I would do that. I, I rarely leave the house, Rob. You know, yeah, I'm trying to travel. I'm not going anywhere. My whole plan just fell apart. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, a couple other things we should talk about. Book is really well written. Um, I really like the kind of cadence with which it's written. Um, you know, there's a lot of good things happening here. And yeah, it was really fucking creepy in some parts. Uh, and I knew it was a creep Rob out because it had water in it. So we know Rob and his fear of water is a... <laughs> Dude, I have, a, I have a thought about that. So um, I mentioned that the that a reservoir is part of this, and without going into anything that spoils it, there's this talk of um, like a legend that uh, around this reservoir because everybody knows that there used to be like a handful of towns in the area that now is covered in water, and one of the legends included being out on a boat and rowing um, over, uh, where you, if you looked down into the water, you could see like the steeple of the church from a town and stuff, and. Um, I think they said if you listen hard enough, you could hear people or something like that. But anyway, um, I was thinking, man, this is just like uh, the house at the bottom of the lake, the Josh Malaman novella um, that we read not too long ago, where um, I revealed at great length and then later on in our Halloween episode that everything is scarier underwater. Not to derail the review, but God damn it, that story, Malaman's story was awesome. This is amazing. I can't yeah. wait for... Um, his new book that's just uh, coming out anytime, any minute now. We I should don't know people. People already seem to have copies of that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. I got that. I got okay. that covered. We will have our All copies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to? Uh, do you want to start um, the wrap ups? Yes, I would love to start the wrap ups. We picked this book because it won the This Is Horror Award. So I, I, I had no real expectations. Of it. I expected it to be good because it won, you know, but. <clears throat> not a huge fan of fishing. I mentioned earlier, I was really afraid this was just going to be fraught with froth with fishing jargon and stuff. I didn't care about, but Langan does a terrific job of taking somebody who's not a fan of fishing and, and still involving me in the book, but not doing it too much. 
uh, the the middle part was terrific. I really liked the what I'll call gothic kind of horror element, um, and then the cosmic horror that that comes out of it. All of it was really good and frightening in that old horror way. Rob and I have talked about new horror versus old horror quite a bit, um, you know, in the last couple of years, and this has a very classic horror feel to it. Um, I think fans of Lovecraft would probably enjoy the type of horror that it is. And and for somebody who's looking for something that's who wants horror that's maybe a little different than most of the newer horror, but this is dense. It is really, 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 really dense. I actually talked to Rob. I finished this book before Rob did. And uh, I said, hey, man, this book is flowing along nicely. But I got to tell you, these are some dense ass pages um, because it's all kind of narrated. There's not a lot of small paragraphs, big paragraphs, lots of words per page. And sometimes it was a little intimidating to try to knock out another 10 or 15 percent. But part of that, too, is that, you know, when I read, we're on a deadline. So I know exactly when I need to be done. So I have to pace myself. And at times I just flip page after page and feel like I wasn't getting anywhere, even though the story was flowing really well. Um, Part three, um, you know, I kind of saw most of that coming. That's obviously the setup is the middle. Uh, I I wasn't uh, too surprised at at how it kind of all turned out. Um, but I will say that uh, two issues, perhaps three issues, perhaps that I had. So um, at the end of the individual stories, um, I felt like they went on for just so when I say individual stories, part two and part three, each one maybe went on a little longer than I would have liked with um, kind of everyday stuff. So in part two is a lot of follow up on what happened to those people. And it's kind of same thing in part three. And then. Rob and I discovered, or Rob reminded me about a a dangling thread in the middle of the book and uh, not in the middle exactly, but towards, you know, the middle of the book, two thirds of the way into the book, which could have been very interesting. I think Rob and I talked our way to a solution on that, but really it, it probably should have been tied up a little better by the author. All that being said, and because I'm not deducting any points for a dream sequence, I'm still going to give this four points. And a half. I was gonna say four point three stars, where Rob would kill me. I'm gonna give it four and a half stars. <laughs> Thanks for the mercy on um, on the making my spreadsheet easier to manage. Um, I I'm right with Livius on pretty much everything he said. Uh, but here's here's the thing. I'm gonna hit the broad strokes. The goddamn story was great. The characters were really well developed. Um, his world building was awesome. Um, this does this is a book that place takes place in actual you know history and everything like an actual United States history, but it implies a much bigger mythos uh, beyond that, and he does a great job world building that um, with what he does reveal, but also with with what he doesn't reveal, and so it left enough mystery to kind of tie into the whole like there are things that we just aren't we cannot fathom, so I think he did a great job of that. Like Livia said, there's a lot of words in this book. Like I was thinking as I was reading this, I wonder how many words are in this book versus like a book of the same length, you know, a, another book of the same length. Because, I mean, sometimes pages were there was no paragraph breaks at all, so it was it was dense, but it had a good pace. Like Livia said, um, but overall, I really can't think of any major objections to this book at all. It's very well done. The story was great. Um, the pace, the plot, the characters were very good. The dread and the terror that it was that it brought was just so fitting of what it was trying to do. Yeah, I mean, this book was just really, really well done. Um, there was, I did notice a couple of typos, but I'm not going to fault the book for that because that would be so petty. Um, so I, I really, I was going to come in at four or four and a half stars, but the more we talk about it, the more I realize just how goddamn well it's it's done. So I'm going to go right to five. And there you have it, four and a half and five star reviews for uh, Langan's The Fisherman. So that's three out of five of the This Is Horror um, nominees that we uh, we reviewed. So yeah, I think we're good there. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think. Well, yes, I'm sorry, specifically for Novel of the Year. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna leave it at that. We're not gonna we're not gonna jump into those other two. Rob, how do you feel about fishing? Um, I've done a little fishing in my day. Um, I did the little, like, you know, you go out as a kid and you go fishing and everything. Um, 
and it was never it was always something to do as a kid but I never was like super passionate about it um when I was a teenager when I was in Alaska a couple of times we did some fishing up there too and that shit is just different um did I ever tell you about fishing in Alaska mm-hmm yeah this I is, think during the the frightening water episodes yeah yeah 20 20 pound salmons and shit like that um I don't know man I, I yeah I I've I've done it enough and we were the thing the thing I remember from fishing in Alaska was that like we were out in wilderness in Alaska and so you know my my entire history is like oh I'm in a suburb and I go to the lake and I fish with my little fishing pole we got at the Kmart or whatever fucking Alaska it's like you know what we have to stay we have to make a lot of noise because if there's any bears nearby we want to scare them away so there was like a level of like reality <laughs> tied to fishing when I was in Alaska that just wasn't there um, in the suburbs of Illinois. Um, so it was fun enough and everything, but again, like at the end of the day, if you're like, Hey, you can go, you know, drive into the middle of a forest to where there's a, there's a river and just be eaten by mosquitoes all day while you're trying to like, you know, steal fish from the river that you're not even going to eat, probably. You just want to just, you know, disrupt their day. Or you can hang out and do this other shit, like drink beers. I'd be like, well, let's just drink the beers. I've always uh, I've always found fishing interesting. And it happened in this book where Abe says, yeah, I didn't eat anything I caught. I would just throw them back in. And I thought, that's even worse, right? Because here's this fish that's fishing, you're trekking along. says, oh, look, there's a piece of food wiggling in the water. It gets a hook stuck through like its cheek. Yeah, you reel it in, and then you just pull it out and throw it back in, which seems worse than just you know beating its head in and then eating it. Like that seems like it has a purpose. Right, right, like survival. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, even if that's survival, just food source. You know what I mean? Like you could also just go and buy a fish for a couple bucks at the at the local grocery store, but throwing them back in kind of seems even worse, doesn't it? Yeah, like it's not, the, it's not the mercy yeah. that everybody thinks it is. Yeah, so um, there's that. I, I've been fishing twice, and, and both times was like I was some kind of fucking billionaire playboy. <laughs> oh, I remember um, hearing about this. <laughs> yeah, so through through a, a former employer, I was taking on two fishing um, expeditions, both of them on Lake Michigan, but like five miles out. On like, I don't know, and I'm, I'm, I'm making this up as I go because I, I don't pay attention to this kind of stuff. Like on a 26-foot boat that had like a bathroom and like a little cabin underneath and like a you can climb up this little ladder and sit on this chair up top that was really cool. And basically, it was really an excuse for all of us to be on the water and be like really, really drunk by 11 in the morning. Like we had a captain and a skipper and they set up like 22 poles and they'd be like, grab that pole. And then they'd help you like reel a fish in and then they'd like gut them and clean them and send them <laughs> home with you. So I, when I when people are like, you ever fished? I'm like, not, not really, because I think most people are thinking sitting on the bank, like you were saying, like walking down to the little creek and standing there and throwing your pole in. No, this was like, you know, like like a high end operation. So um, that's been my fishing, fishing experience. Yeah, and pretty much I would totally do that again because it was kind of nice being on a boat and just drinking at 8 a.m. But, you know, other than that, no, I don't see you and I grabbing the poles and, and walking down to that, that body of water right behind your place and, and casting in, <laughs> now, especially after reading this book. So I said this during, uh, I think I said this during Spoiler Talk, or maybe it was just you and I were talking. I, was, I said that the Blair Witch Project made it so I never had to go camping again, and this book made it so I never have to go fishing again. Yeah, man. Uh, water is like if you go through the history of the books that we've read water is almost always depicted as a bad place <laughs> i can't think of many times where it wasn't like like there's the drowning girl and raw shark texts and you know like no oh, there was on the water's edge all right why am I not even thinking of that? I don't even know what you're talking about. That was that weird. It was a wheel of meat pick. It was about some woman in Scotland. Oh. And do you remember what I'm talking yeah, about? I remember she winds up now. living at that inn for yeah. like three months. Yeah, and... but someone gets killed in that water. Doesn't someone drown? Mm, maybe. Does someone, someone drown? Drowns. I remember there's a mailman in it. There was definitely uh, there was a lot of like just sad infidelity going on, I thought. Anyway. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. Water bad. 
water bad. Um, speaking of which, we're only a couple weeks away from staying like what, what, like like <laughs> like a hundred feet away from the ocean. Isn't yeah. that within yeah, stumbling so, uh, distance of like the largest body of water that exists? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, we're gonna see if we get some live live footage of pushing Rob into that water and seeing if he runs away and screams <laughs> like a little girl. Um, and our race on the beach. Didn't we talk about? That? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's gonna come to fruition. That... I realized how much effort that is running. Yeah, running does take more effort than not running. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm really about at the the not running effort level. So. But uh, it'll be interesting to see. Maybe we can get Rob to dip a toe in the in the big scary water. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I'll be I'll be walking around in that. Um, but we're out there for StokerCon, and that's pretty exciting stuff too. We are. So our schedule is going to be wonky for the next um, few weeks. So let's give you a little bit maybe of a preview of what you might expect. Um, next week there will be no episode for 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 the peoples for the masses. Um, there will be only. Um, well, what's our second patron exclusive episode? Because we had one way back when with Von Media. And uh, this will be the second one. But this time it's an Easter something. We don't have a name. I'm sure Extravaganza <laughs> is going to go in there somewhere and something really cool after that. Um, but we will have uh, our, our newest uh, additions. Is ho- I don't even know how to say it. Like Like our new holiday team, right? Which is... Jesse Lawrence and Amanda Gowan joining us. Maybe Amanda Gowan because she's never for sure until she's actually on. Yeah, she, yeah, she might be sleeping again. But Rob, how can how? What is the only way that people can hear that episode? All right, so our Easter, uh, whatever we end up naming it, extravaganza is going to be exclusive to Patreon contributors. So if you want to catch that, um, go to Patreon.com/booked and pledge even a dollar a month and you'll be able to hear not only um, our exclusive holiday episodes that we're going to start doing on a regular basis but also spoiler talk for um, you know this book The Fisherman that we just finished reviewing but also I mean easily the last out of the last dozen books that we've reviewed probably 80% had spoiler talk so if you've listened to those reviews and you want a little bit more you'll be able to go back and hear all that stuff as well I am looking forward to it. I think that drunk Livius might be attending, or at least drinking Livius <laughs> might be attending the Easter episode. So we'll see. Oh, I'm hoping drunk Livius flies out to California because, um, yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Hopefully uh, California has chocolate wine. If there's chocolate wine, drunk Livius is going to make an appearance. I think that's where the chocolate trees come from. <laughs> love it um so that's next week so if you're just a general masses listener next week sorry nothing for you guys uh the following week probably a book review with maybe an interview we're not certain yet because we're still trying to kind of nail that down but then we're going to just flat out pretty much take a week off while we're at StokerCon because we are planning on collecting um some some really good content for you guys and quite frankly some notches in in my personal belt there are some people that are going to be at StokerCon that i've been looking forward to meeting hanging out with, talking to. Uh, so a lot of it might just be me like name dropping afterwards. Like, oh, you know, I walked down the hallway and I almost bumped into Jack Ketchum and he said, excuse me, stuff like that. So that'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> get but that chocolate promise, wine drinker away from me. <laughs> we'll promise you an interlude when we get back where we'll talk about some of the things that happen at StokerCon. But we do plan on bringing you some pretty cool stuff um, from StokerCon. I'm I'm really excited about it. The the way it's shaping up, it looks like it's going to be a really good trip. Now, when you said you're going to have notches in your belt, I was thinking like, who's Livius trying to have sex with at StokerCon, and why didn't he warn me about this? Because, Jack, like... catch him <laughs> in a hallway. <laughs> um, if I'm super super uh, lucky, maybe I can catch a hug from Craig Clevenger. Maybe he'll come yeah. up for for the evening, and we can hang out, and you know, I can be super awkward around him and, oh. and, and try to. Out of them, Stephen Graham Jones is going to be there too. I was already super awkward around Stephen Graham yeah. Jones once, so that belt that notch is, is already exists. But uh, you know, there, there's some people there that I'd really like to make their acquaintance, yeah. so I'm very much looking forward to this. I'm really excited about being on a panel with the guys from Pseudopod. Now, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know that there are not a lot of podcasts and they do just horror stories, so I don't know that you know we're exactly the same type of thing. 
But uh, Pseudopod is one of the few podcasts I'm aware of that actually have more episodes than we do. <sighs> There's not a lot because we're at 350 basically now at this point. Ready to, ready to feel like a fucking amateur? 537. They just posted their 537th episode two days ago. That doesn't phase me, my friend. Does not phase me. All right. We're almost there, man. Three years, we'll be there. Oh, I know. I just think they're going to keep going. So when we're talking about them, they're going to be at 1,000. But Mm. my point is, that's pretty cool because a lot of podcasts just don't make it that long. So um, kind of excited about being on a panel from with them. Um, we'll probably talk about that. I don't think we'll have actual content for uh, the podcast from there, but I'm sure we're going to talk about rubbing elbows with the the folks at Pseudopod and, and who knows who else might be on that panel. Yeah, lots of elbows. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Like um, typically in the last <laughs> every time we've gone to a conference, we've um, made no real contribution to the conference and it was more or less a way to just hang out with some authors that we know this time we're really making an effort to contribute to the con and um even hopefully and to booked yeah come back with some content that will um you know make the listeners happy make the listeners go over to patreon and give us more money so we can go to more conferences and give them more i mean it's a give and take man you give us stuff we take it and then eventually we give you some stuff, and then you take it. Which reminds me, I'm going to need to use some of the that Patreon money because uh, I got to buy one of those uh, like loofah type things so I can scrape the dead skin off my elbows. Because I think if I'm going to rub elbows, yeah. with people, they should be really smooth and soft elbows, and you not wanna... the dry ones that I'm <laughs> carrying around with me all winter. Yeah, we can't have people thinking that the booked guys are just a bunch of ashy elbowed assholes. Um, can't you go to like one of those weird like you know places where you get your nails done, and they can just do that for you? I don't know. I've never had my nails done. Neither have I. I almost had my nails done. Did I ever tell you about the time I almost had my nails done? <laughs> I, I think there's a story here. I'd love to hear. Do you remember? You remember Fatney, the Fatney podcast? I do remember that. Yes. Joe and Dan were all about going to get manicures, and I let them talk me into this. Yeah. Um, and we we went to a place, but they only had like two technicians available at the time. So like I just had to sit and wait. By the time they were done, like I didn't want to make those guys wait like twenty. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. they were done, and I was. They were like, "Are you sure?" And I was like, "Yeah, really, I'm okay. I, I, I kind of came to just hang out with you guys. Like I wasn't really looking forward to it. I am not beyond um, getting a manicure. Uh, I'm just saying that I haven't. So I don't know if they do uh, ashy elbow removal or, or whatever. Not where they remove your elbows because that would just be weird. But if they remove <laughs> dry skin from your elbows as some kind of treatment, I'm okay with just taking $10 of Patreon money and going and buying a device and doing this myself and then letting <laughs> you use my disgusting device afterwards. So I can only imagine what your elbows look like. My elbows are pretty nice, actually. I, I take care of that shit. Um, I will say that at one time I did go to a nail place with a friend and I had to witness eyebrow threading. Have you ever seen that? Is that not the most horrifying thing ever? First of all, it's super cool, right? Because you're like, this lady has two pieces of string. What the fuck is she going to do with that? You're like, oh, my God. But then there's a lot of blood and stuff. So that's not cool. Yeah, there's a reason that after witnessing that, I've never had my eyebrows threaded. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because fuck that. I mean, like, yes, it is goddamn like next to wizardry. The fact that they can take some thread and basically like, you know, trim your eyebrows or whatever the fuck they do. Let's, let's take a step back, man. They turned like a cheap parlor trick into, I'm sure, it was a fucking multi-million dollar business. Oh, it's an industry. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, it's it's crazy. And, and you know that was just somebody like, want to see something cool? Look at what I discovered. And then like, Phew. how did that start? Like, was oh, it just like I was someone's... just, just going to look that up. I'm glad you yeah. asked. Because like, Ooh, all I can imagine is someone's like oh man i left all of my tweezers at home and i'm a professional like beauty person whatever they i call am them. gonna go before i have any information i just want to say i'm gonna go on the record saying i'm sure the asians invented this <laughs> you don't think that that was a uh <clears throat> a, it's not a part of americana <laughs> it is unknown where threading originated first central asia or india According to one theory, the practice started in India over 6,000 years ago and spread throughout Asia, the Middle East, and in recent times, Europe. 6,000 years ago? 6,000 years ago, man. Well, there definitely wasn't any tweezers back then, I'm guessing. No, because they would have been made of, like, rocks. It would be really hard to get two rocks to, like... 
<laughs> Ancient hair removal technique practiced for centuries among the most beautiful women of Asia and the Middle East. It is the best alternative to waxing and tweezing, especially for sensitive skin. Huh. Um, I guess that makes sense. Now, but here's my thought. Like, I think about, okay, so this is like 6,000 years, you know, a, a practice for 6,000 years and everything. Um, It's kind of like using chopsticks when there's like a fork or a spoon nearby, right? Like, isn't there just easier ways to do that shit now? Like waxing and stuff? Um, I mean, yeah, I guess. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm watching a video. It's a 10-part video <laughs> on how to do threading. Threading your eyebrows. It's on WikiHow. Um, they're showing how lady to test the thread with your thumb and fingers. Dude, I think I could totally do this. Oh God. Oh God. Though the woman's doing it on herself and it's terrifying. All right, we're done. We're done. You're not looking at threadhub, threadhub.com. No, no, I'm not. This is really, uh, yeah, it looks, I've watched it happen and it does not, it's not like I'm like, oh man, that looks like a lot of fun. It looks like it's goddamn painful. Yeah, and do they only thread eyebrows, or I mean that I mean that practice has to work pretty much on any hair anywhere. Oh, what would they call that though? So it's not eyebrow threading, <sighs> vagina threading. <laughs> That's what laser hair removal is for. Yeah, but hold on a second, because here's the here's the six weirdest things <laughs> women do to their vaginas. All right. <laughs> Right, oh, I'm so excited. Um, so, pro- so they have a problem and a solution. I'm not going to read. Uh, maybe I'll read a paragraph or two if we get something good. So problem number one, your vagina smells bad. The solution is there's vaginal deodorant. Problem, your vagina is dirty. You would think the solution would just be to wash it. But douching is the solution for that. Problem three, your vagina is too loose. Um, that is, uh, do you not know what the... What the um, Solution for that is? Is it going to be the Kegel exercises? No, it's vaginal rejuvenation. Oh. Problem number four, your vagina is ugly. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I knew they do, like, surgeries for that shit. Yep. It's called labiaplasty, which makes perfect sense. Um, Problem number five. Oh, man. I knew this is going to get weird. Your vagina tastes bad. And the solution is vagina mints. Here's where we're going to do some reading. Vagina mints? Yeah, if your partner is reluctant to give you oral sex, it's not because of pervasive cultural belief that cunnilingus is complicated to the point of being impossible and that vaginas are inherently icky, thus the need to uncomplicate them and unickify them with, oh, say, labiaplasty. It's because your vagina tastes bad. Enter the linger internal vaginal flavoring or Altoids for your vagina. Linger assumes you already feel bad about your nether region, stating on its website that the mint-flavored pill decreases self-consciousness and tosses out the unattributed statistic that 72% of women feel self-conscious about their taste and order. Dubious marking practices aside, the Linger mint isn't just a harmless, if asinine, oddity. Mother Jones Magazine did some digging into the origins of Linger and discovered that the vagina mint is no different from a regular mint. In other words, it's made out of sugar and putting sugar-based mint Directly into your vagina is a recipe for mint-flavored yeast infection. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, you said sugar-based mint, and I thought you said a sugar basement, and I was like, wait. <laughs> that sounds like sugar the most ba- awesome place ever. Just a basement <laughs> full of sugar. And that's just a really rude thing to call your girlfriend's vagina a sugar basement. Oh, my God. That's amazing, Rob. <laughs> sugar basement. I've got to remember the sugar basement. <laughs> Rob's, Rob's path. Is a weird and difficult one. <laughs> strange. Damn it. It's a strange and difficult one. Uh, uh, problem number six. Your vagina is the wrong color. And the solution is vaginal bleaching and dying. Not dying. <laughs> Just drop dead. Because <laughs> that part seems like a solution to the previous five problems, too. Your vagina smells bad. Just die. No more issue. Oh, man. <laughs> I, oh, I think that some listeners are like at some point they're gonna get to reading an article like this is script <laughs> this is totally you know what we had scripted afterwards the page count the page count which we didn't do yet and that's it uh, and all of this just came right off the cuff this is why we were able to do the last episode the interlude with zero zero notes yeah that's it so uh hey lady listeners let us know 
Your weirdest vagina. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Do you want to talk about the key page count update? Can I talk more about the vaginas? Because I scrolled to the bottom, and in this last paragraph, it says, because vaginas that aren't vibrantly pink are old and sad. Do you believe that? Like, <laughs> I believe the no sentences made me laugh more this week than that. So. Vaginas that aren't vibrant and pink are old and sad. Is that what it is? Yep. Yep. Wow. Well, if that's not vagina shaming, I don't know what it is. I think they were saying it um, sarcastically because this, yeah. this is, yeah, the, the, all of these, by the way, when it says six weirdest things to do, I believe all of them have um, reasons afterwards that, that you shouldn't do them. Well, definitely that yeast mint thing going like the sugar basement. No one should do that. Yeah. And they're talking about how it's going to cost you $5,000 for labiaplasty, um, the sugar basement, uh, <laughs> You get yeast Something infections. about yeah, yeah. jellies and creams to clear out any vaginal secretions. So basically, anytime your vagina isn't as dry as a British sitcom. I'm not sure what this Mother Jones website is, but these writers, Andy Wright, of course, it's a guy writing about, although it could be a woman named Andy, writing about women's um, vaginal problems seems a little weird. It's cultural appropriation, a man talking about vagina problems. I don't think women are a culture, though. <laughs> I mean, I just got to give me that one. Just give me that one. All right, you I got love it. calling things like, cultural appropriation. All yours, buddy. I mean, so like, okay, I'm going to challenge you on that one. If I did, if I staged a performance of the vagina monologues, would that not be cultural appropriation? That would be white male privilege, I believe. Okay, and cultural appropriation. Did I tell you about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so excited about this. This, this, this may not even if this this you, you may you may choose to edit this out. You don't have to. Um, I, I know a gentleman who is uh, half African American and half uh, half white. Um, but in, in talking to him, we realized that everyone refers to him as half black, kind of like like Barack Obama, right? Like everyone <laughs> refers to him as black. Yeah. But the thing is, he's half white. So I had this. It just occurred to me that he was actually eligible for white male privilege <laughs> because he's half white. So I explained to him how incredibly awesome it was, and I encouraged him to go on and, and, and be white male privileged. And, and he's trying, and so far he's had some pretty good success. <laughs> Are there any specific successes you'd like to talk about or just saying uh, in no, general? because I, I don't want to share any of his personal business. But sense. all I'm saying is that he was pretty excited at the realization that he could also use white male privilege, which mm -hmm. is not something that had occurred to him previously. He, he Well, and then he, – so he's like – he's – so and not only is he does he eligible for white male privilege, but he also can dance. I'm guessing, right? I have not had the opportunity to see him dance. I'll, I'll be honest with you from from talking to the guy. I, I don't see that as being in his wheelhouse. Oh, oh. it was almost the perfect uh, perfect situation for him there. Yeah. So, <sighs> well, what can you do? <laughs> you know, you know what we can do. We can do a key page count update, Rob. Excellent. Since you, you did the math here, um, insert drum roll and uh, fancy music here. What is our key page count update? So as of the end of this review, so we're including The Fisherman by John Langan in our page count. We are up to 2,864 pages for 2017, which means that in just a pinch over three months, we've read just under 3,000. You do the math on that. We're, we're, we're clocking in. Close to over ten thousand for sure, but close to twelve thousand pages for the year. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, we managed to do all that, do the reviews, uh, start another podcast. Um, I, I think, I think we're doing okay. I think we're we're putting in we're putting in the work. Yeah, I mean, I'm inching myself closer to you know complete meltdown, like psychological meltdown. But I'm pretty happy with our progress. <laughs> if we pull off this pace for the entire year, we will effectively double the reading that we did in 2016. It's my job to keep you on that pace. That's what I do. Excellent. So, um, Excellent. Um, you heard us mention it a couple of times. If you haven't heard it yet, maybe it's your first time listening. We also host a podcast called the view, um, which uh, entails at least in this first dreadfully long season um, that we, we watch <laughs> several episodes of Twin Peaks. The long-term plan is not to do four episodes every week of, of anything, God, I hope. 
But uh, in order to get caught up in time for Twin Peaks season three, whatever the new season of Twin Peaks is being called, Rob and I have decided to launch our new podcast by talking about every single episode of Twin Peaks and getting it done in time for us to do one per week of the new season. Um, it's not a review. Um, we, we talk about things we like. We maybe talk. I talk about things I don't like uh, and, and just kind of general thoughts and, and maybe a little bit recapish um, on the on the episodes. But uh, you are welcome to listen and to play along by joining us over in our Reddit uh, group. Uh, the subreddit is The View Podcast. Um, and where you can find like what when we're reviewing something and you can watch along on Netflix because all of it's available on Netflix and you can comment about the episode. And uh, in some cases, we pick comments to talk about or elaborate on on the view. So we're having a it's very stressful, but we're having we're having fun doing it. So I'm, I'm excited <laughs> that we decided to take that on. And uh, we're on Twin Peaks season two, episodes five through eight currently. Um, and that's with uh, four episodes down. That gives you the idea of the pace we're moving at. Yeah. Um, I just want to say Twin Peaks yesterday tweeted at around 8 o'clock central time. But it was exactly 27 years ago to the minute that Twin Peaks aired. So um, they just celebrated a 27-year anniversary uh, leading up to season three. Um, very excited about that. I know that, Livius, have you watched any of the episodes that we're going to be talking about for 5 through 8? Just just 5. I watched okay. 5 last night. There is some uh, humdingers in, in the upcoming episodes, so it's going to be an interesting um, episode <laughs> 5 of our podcast, for sure. Really, really what The View has done is changed the way Rob and I speak, because we say things like humdingers now, and yeah. in cahoots. That's really cahoots. what's, what's <laughs> happened, so um, yeah. give it a listen. I mean, I'll be honest, it's us talking, but if you haven't seen Twin Peaks, if you've seen it, you probably don't need to rewatch it to, to jump in and, and listen to some thoughts on it. it might even uh, make you a little nostalgic for uh, for Twin Peaks. Um, but yeah, if that's not your thing, it, it, it's different than what we do at Book. There's a lot less banter, and it's a lot more about the show and things, how we feel about things that happen in the show. But it's a lot of fun to do, and, and I hope that The View has a good many seasons ahead of it. Absolutely, and especially considering... After Twin Peaks, um, in between that and our next series, we're going to be watching Flash Gordon. And um, I think probably I'm going to be in encouraging um, our a guest appearance by someone as well. So Flash Gordon, going to happen. Anyway. Savior of the universe. Rob has <laughs> never seen Flash Gordon. Um, not as an adult. <laughs> Oh, all right. As like an, as a toddler, maybe. Um, I've seen it as an adult. Yeah. I've seen it in the last year, probably like four times. Good, so. fucking lord. All right. Well, this, yeah, this will be the opposite where I'm like, well, I don't know what's going on. So join us over at the View. Catch up if you're not caught up. Uh, contribute if you're uh, if you're not contributing, and check back for. Ooh, yeah, definitely. Uh, now is the time to hit up Patreon so you can get our Easter holiday episode and. Check back for some book reviews, hear about StokerCon, and um, that's going to wrap it up for this week. So join us again. Until then, Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading.